Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. I thank you for joining me on this Thanksgiving Day. Taking a look again at the festival, the Feast of Thanksgiving, and going back to the very first one, my guest, Robert Tracy McKenzie, is chair of Faith and Learning and the professor of history at Wheaton College and the author of The First Thanksgiving, What the Real Story Tells Us About Loving God and Learning from History. You can follow him uh, at his blog at faithandamericanhistory.wordpress.com. We'll have that linked for you at our site. And uh, Dr. McKenzie, good to have you with me. Thank you. Thank you, Al. It's my pleasure. Let's talk about uh, what's the evidence available to us about the first Thanksgiving. It's a great question. It's a good historical question, because that's where a historian always wants to start. Uh, <laughs> the answer is a little bit surprising, uh, and that's that there really isn't a great deal of evidence. Uh, in fact, uh, the main source that we have for this event in 1621 comes from a pamphlet uh, that contained a variety of documents uh, about the, the Plymouth Colony, including a single letter written back to England. Uh, and in this letter, there's one paragraph devoted to the event, a total of 115 words, four sentences. Yeah. And that is the sum total of all the evidence that survives about the event that, we, um, that just has loomed so large in our memory. Mm-hmm. And what's it tell us? Well, it doesn't tell us very much, actually, at least not the things that we want uh, it to to tell us. It says that uh, the harvest had been brought in, uh, the the governor sent four men uh, on fowling, uh, as it was put, that is to say, to to shoot birds for a a celebration. Uh, It's clear that this was with a celebration uh, as the the objective, Uh, and um, uh, ultimately, they celebrated, and we don't know exactly how long they celebrated, but it, it seems to have been at least for multiple days. And the one other thing it tells us is that at some point uh, in that time period, uh, the, the local Native American uh, tribe uh, showed up and joined in the celebration, the Wampanoag people, uh, and they probably outnumbered the pilgrims uh, two to three to one at least. Okay. And that's about all that we know. Um, so from that <clears throat> from that. Is there any kind of oral tradition that's reliable? Well, uh, the, the short answer is is no. Um, the the event is is largely forgotten. Uh, this this little um, pamphlet that is published in 1622 is is really only published in England, uh, and it largely disappears uh, from circulation and doesn't show up again for um, uh, more than two centuries. It actually shows up in the 1820s. Uh, and there was a New England minister who, who came across it and published it in a book about New England history uh, in the 1840s. And from that period, from the 1620s to the 1840s, this event is just not remembered. Uh, the uh, descendants of the pilgrims remember the pilgrims as the first comers, they would call them, or the, sort of the founders of the Massachusetts uh, colony, ultimately. But they don't remember this event of, of celebration. Hmm. Uh, and so it really is two centuries afterward before it's first mentioned. I've actually um, unearthed, I think, 223 Thanksgiving proclamations that were uh, issued at the state or local level before um, 1840, and the pilgrims are never mentioned a single time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they really only sort of come back into our memory and become part of our um, heritage um, more than two centuries after the event itself. What about the day of Thanksgiving that uh, Washington declared in 1789? So there are days of Thanksgiving, and certainly uh, the, even in New England, some of the descendants of the pilgrims had begun 
uh, within two or three generations to practice pretty regular uh, days of uh, Thanksgiving in the fall and days of humiliation and fasting uh, in the spring. It just wasn't linked in any way to a specific event. It wasn't described as now we're imitating what the pilgrims did. Um, so, so Washington does issue a, a, a day of national Thanksgiving in 1789, uh, but that doesn't really set a pattern, at least at the presidential level. That's not something that's going to come uh, to become a habit uh, an annual practice until uh, Abraham Lincoln, who, um, from hindsight, we would say he initiated sort of the the pattern of, of annual Thanksgiving proclamations by the president when he does so during the Civil War uh, in 1863. Was there any controversy um, about a president declaring a day of Thanksgiving? Was that something that sh- might have been well, argued should uh, be left for the governors? Yeah, yeah, uh, there there was some controversy. I think, by and large, uh, it was largely uh, approved. Uh, but there were <clears throat> uh, there was some controversy. One, um, th- those who took the separation of, of church and state, and I mean really devout Christians who took the, sure. the issue of separation of church and state seriously, thought that it wasn't necessarily a good precedent for uh, the civil official. Uh, high civil civil official in the government to be issuing uh, days with religious significance like that. So that was an issue that was raised uh, to some degree. One of the other things that was a little bit controversial was that it's very difficult for a president to issue a proclamation of Thanksgiving without making some kind of political statement. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I think if you look at a lot of those presidential proclamations, they do. And if you look at Lincoln's in 1863, one of the things he basically says is we want to thank God for how well the war is going. And that was something that uh, Republicans and Democrats at the time in the North uh, really strongly disagreed over. Uh, And so if you're a Democrat at the time, you probably see Lincoln trying to, to make some political statements in the process of making this uh, religious decree. So that was a little bit um, controversial as well. Talk to me about the context of the first Thanksgiving. Uh, what do we know about the relationship between uh, the pilgrims and the Native Americans in the region? Right. Uh, it's a great question. And, and we're actually able to to breathe life into that context um, much more than we can sort of the, the specific nuts and bolts of the of the Thanksgiving celebration in mm-hmm. 1621. But so we know a variety of things. We know, for example, that the Native American population of that area of Massachusetts had really been um, decimated by disease in the two or three generations immediately preceding the pilgrim's arrival. So there had been contact with various uh, European, probably fishing boats, uh, in the late 1500s and early 1600s, and that had brought certain kinds of diseases that weren't uh, indigenous to North America and had a really devastating effect. So there had been a lot of upheaval in the Native American population, and some tribes have been affected uh, more than others. Uh, and so when the when the pilgrims arrive, the Native American peoples are significantly weakened from what they would have been just a few generations before. Uh, and the people that are uh, settled right around uh, Plymouth, uh, had been particularly hard hit by disease. Uh, and actually, because of that, I think probably welcomed the pilgrims uh, as a potential ally hmm. in some of their rivalries with, with other Native American peoples. So although there's a fair amount of suspicion on both sides, 
one of the things that seems pretty clear uh, is that both the pilgrims and the Wampanoag uh, believed that they needed one another, uh, or at the least that there was ways that a relationship could be mutually beneficial. Uh, and so they actually do um, uh, enter into a, a more or less peaceful and beneficial uh, relationship that lasts for several generations. Really? It lasts that long? So it's not the first Thanksgiving was fine, but it's all been downhill since? <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the first real outbreak of, of extensive uh, violent conflict would, would have been actually in the 1670s and 1680s. Okay. So okay. it's, uh, it's something that lasts for you know, several decades at least. What do you, how do you account for that? I mean, that's, that's good news, so I'm kind of wondering... Um, what is positive? Well, I, I think part of it is, again, uh, that there was a kind of um, practical need that each had of the other, and I, and I think that's part of it. Uh, had the pilgrims arrived, uh, say, 30 or 40 years earlier, it might have been uh, a temptation for the Wampanoag simply just to sort of swat them away yeah, or drive yeah. them back into the sea. Uh, so I think that's part of it. Uh, I also think the... The, the pilgrims actually, unlike some, some later immigrants to the area, um, really didn't have broad ambitions for a geographical expansion. They actually uh, settle in a very dense way and stay within um, 15, 20 miles of the coast for several decades. Uh, and so that sort of also alleviated potential for, uh, for conflict uh, as well. Mm. So it's it's not a it's not a warm and fuzzy story necessarily in the sense of of um, great intimate friendship, but it's it's a story of of success nonetheless because they practically found it possible to get along uh, and actually even to be a blessing to one another. Let me ask a question which may have been irrelevant to them, but I'm curious: <clears throat> How would the uh, Pilgrims and later the Puritans? S- understand their relationship to the Native Americans, would they have founded a a settlement with them? Would they have allowed their sons and daughters to intermarry? Um, What was the degree of separateness that they understood as necessary for, quote, holiness? Yeah, that's a a good question. Uh, I think... um, I think there is a suspicion of uh, the Native Americans uh, because they, they see them as heathen. And one of the, the ways, really, that they understand the, the human condition uh, is that our hearts are uh, sort of naturally wicked, and we are uh, subject to all manner of temptation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they would have, I believe, tended to think that it was much easier for a Christian people to be um, corrupted by interaction with pagans than it was possible for pagans to be uh, Christianized by uh, believing peoples. So that doesn't mean that they necessarily avoided interaction. That's not what I'm suggesting at all. But they also don't engage in extensive um, uh, efforts at missionary uh, activities, that will come later, but it's, it's actually the late 1600s before that's very extensive, and that's several generations removed from the pilgrims. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they certainly, uh, I think, genuinely would like to be a blessing to them. And, and there is evidence that one of the pilgrims, um, one of the prominent pilgrims, a man named Edward Winslow, 
uh, at one point travels to um, to, to meet the, the chief of the Wampanoag and actually finds him uh, suffering from a pretty serious illness and helps to nurse him uh, to, to health. Uh, and so they, they desire to, to have that kind of positive influence. Uh, but I think they are fearful of what sort of intimate, ongoing interaction might mean for them. Okay. Uh, hold it there if you would, uh, Dr. McKenzie. We'll come back on the other side of the break. Talking about the first Thanksgiving, what the real story tells us about loving God and learning from our history. My guest is Dr. Robert Tracy McKenzie. He's chair of Faith and Learning and professor of history at Wheaton College and author of The First Thanksgiving. I'm Al Cresta, and we'll be right back. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is Dr. Robert Tracy McKenzie. He is author of The First Thanksgiving, What the Real Story Tells Us About Loving God and Learning from History. How should we distinguish the aspirations of the pilgrims from those settlers who came to Jamestown? Yeah, that's a good question. Their aspirations are very different. And and one of the things that I think is so interesting about our history is that um, it makes a, a difference to the way we remember our past, whether we emphasize the the Pilgrims or the Jamestown Colony is, is one of the first real um, important communities uh, in the future United States. Uh, the, the Jamestown Colony is, is founded primarily as a commercial venture. Mm-hmm. Uh, there had been a joint stock company established in London uh, in the very early 1600s, and they had a vision of um, exploiting the natural resources of that uh, area in coastal Virginia to you know, make profit for their investors. Uh, they have uh, a vision that it might be a lucrative place to um, uh, develop uh, wineries, uh, and it might be a place to uh, harvest silk from silkworms, uh, and they imagine tropical fruits being able to, to grow there and, and, and so forth. And so most of the people that are attracted to that Jamestown settlement are part of that commercial venture. Now, some of them were investors. Some of them are just manual laborers. Some of them are skilled craftsmen who have been uh, hired by the company to be part of the work. The very first ship that arrives at Jamestown 1607, its passengers are exclusively male, uh, and they're almost all single hmm. uh, in, their, in their personal uh, background. So you have more than 100 single men, uh, and for many years after that, uh, the gender ratio in the, the Virginia colony is overwhelmingly male. So even six to one as late as the, uh, say, 1670s, 1680s. Wow. I, uh, I, 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 don't, I don't mean to be crude here, but do those males seek out wives among the Native Americans? Well, they, they probably sought out companionship, if I yeah, could use that right. euphemism. Uh, but, but there wasn't much intermarriage. There, there might have been some, uh, but I think those were more often exceptions to the rule. Okay. One of the things we would say about this population is extremely transient. The mortality rate is incredibly high. Okay. So it's just a very unstable uh, population. But again, the colony hadn't been motivated by desire to create a stable community. It had been motivated by desire to uh, generate profit. Yeah. And then we compare that to the, the Plymouth colony that's established um, in 1620, and uh, it's overwhelmingly, not exclusively, but um, overwhelmingly a migration of families. Uh, they definitely are going, uh, hoping to create a permanent new life for themselves, uh, and they're concerned about the institutions that 
that helped create a community in addition to the family, such as the church, uh, fairly quickly schools. And it's just, it's just a very different uh, set of motive, motives and a very different pattern. Uh, what, <clears throat> so let's talk about what they wanted then. Uh, what did the pilgrims uh, actually want? They wanted to establish a permanent settlement. For what reason? Yeah, that's a great question, and any short answer tends to be a little bit uh, misleading. I, I always push back against the very um, sort of simplistic statement that we hear and, and repeat, which is that their primary motivation was uh, to search out religious freedom. Right. But I have to qualify that. They, sure. they definitely valued religious freedom, no doubt about that, although I would start with the observation that they didn't mean by religious freedom what we tend to mean. Mm -hmm. They understood liberty as not the freedom to do anything that you wished. Right. Uh, and in terms of religious liberty, they never would have understood it as simply um, obeying the dictates of your individual conscience. Mm -hmm. Liberty was the freedom to do what God required of you. Uh, and so their pastor in Holland, a man named John Robinson, said is, it's the Christian's liberty to love God in faith and serve his neighbor in love. Uh, and so liberty simply meant the freedom to do what God re required, uh, but not what you personally thought was, was right. But having said that, in Holland, where they had gone directly from, from England around 1608, they more or less had that kind of freedom. And so uh, William Bradford, who will later become the uh, governor of the colony, will remember their time in Holland as a time when they actually were allowed to uh, organize a um, congregation uh, without interference uh, to worship God as they believed the Scripture uh, required them to do, to raise their children as they believed the Scripture taught them to. And so they're not leaving Holland because of religious persecution. They had left England because of uh, persecution against dissenters from the Church of England. But, but they weren't coming to Massachusetts from England. They were coming from Holland. From Holland, where they had relative religious liberty. Where, where they did. Yeah. Uh, and so when you read uh, William Bradford talk about the conversations that are leading up to the decision to migrate, um, largely they're emphasizing uh, two or three other factors that weren't strictly uh, about uh, freedom of worship. They're talking about the great difficulty that they have economically, there were laws in Leiden, where they lived most of the time, that pretty much restricted skilled crafts uh, to native-born individuals. And so it was really strictly controlled who could earn living in certain ways. Mm -hmm. And so they were more or less confined to really uh, tedious, back-breaking, low-paying uh, kinds of jobs. Uh, they're also concerned about the influence of Dutch culture. Uh, they see the local uh, Dutch believers as more permissive, uh, as um, uh, actually encouraging a kind of environment that is detrimental to the faithfulness of their children, and that worries them a great deal. Uh, and they're also just concerned that their children, even if they're remaining faithful as uh, Christian believers, they're becoming more and more Dutch and less and less English, and that's not what they want either. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so all these things sort of point up to the desirability of um, creating a new home uh, where perhaps economic opportunity would be greater, where there would be less um, concerns about the, the culture's influences. Once in uh, America, 
did they have a different vision of uh, civil culture than later Puritans? Uh, so, so sometimes it's it's um, sometimes you will hear the the Pilgrims understood as fundamentally a, a different group from the Puritans. Right. I actually, don't think of them in that way. Okay. I think it's a little little misleading. I think of the, the of the Pilgrims as a kind of subset of Puritans. All right. So we start with the Puritan movement in England as just a, a movement to purify the Church of England from. Uh, remnants of Catholic practice and belief that that they believe are uh, are not proper. Right. Um, the the Pilgrims then become a subset within that group that are by far the most radical. So they were known as separatists, whereas most Puritans believed that they could reform the Church of England from within the Church. The separatists ultimately reached the conclusion uh, that the Church of England was was not a true church at all. And to worship with it, to sit under the instruction of a pure, excuse me, an Anglican um, minister was sinful, and so they're the most uh, extreme uh, sort of subset within um, Puritanism. Um, what what separates, I think, the the Pilgrims and the and the Puritans later is I actually think the Pilgrims did a better job of distinguishing between the community that they were creating uh, and um, the the possibility of a future kind of civil state. Um, the the pilgrims. One of the things I think we can so easily lose sight of is just the significance of of the name. The name pilgrim is something that that William Bradford applied to them, hmm. and and he used that term because he said that he believed their mindset very self consciously believed that the world was not their home, that they were sojourners and strangers, that their citizenship was in heaven. Uh, the the Puritans are more likely, it seems to me, it, say that in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, the non-separatists, uh, to eventually uh, uh, imagine uh, a way of life in which the church and the state are are in many ways fused, uh, and they, uh, in particular, begin to make comparisons of themselves uh, to uh, the uh, children of Israel. Uh, uh, being sent by God to the to the promised land, uh, and so just as God drives out the um, pagan peoples from um, the land of Canaan to create a place for His chosen, they are often uh, speaking about the um, Native American the indigenous people uh, as these pagans that God will clear out of the way hmm. uh, for His chosen people, and that's a language that the Pilgrims just didn't use very much. Interesting. Uh, okay. Which I think is a significant difference. Yeah, fascinating. Um, well, let's let's talk about how do we appropriate uh, this memory uh, of the first Thanksgiving in the way uh, we should think of ourselves as Christians uh, in the United States today, and as mm-hmm. those who are going to celebrate uh, Thanksgiving yeah. today. I think that's that's a great question. It's maybe the most important one. Um, and we, we've got about start, two minutes to do it too. All right. So. Here, here's a real here's a real quick answer. I would I would just underscore that um, the pilgrims actually didn't believe in practicing a prescribed annual Thanksgiving. They actually argued that Thanksgiving celebrations were to be in response to uh, the providential, extraordinary uh, provision of God. Ah. 
Uh, and, and so what they did that we wouldn't do today is they would sometimes have multiple Thanksgivings in a year. Sometimes years would go by, they would have, have, have none. But what they were doing, I think, is that they were training themselves and training their children to look with expectancy daily for God's uh, extraordinary provision uh, in time of, of particular need. And one of the things that I just I just so admire that, and and I've thought many times if if I had learned this earlier when my children were very small, I would have loved to occasionally just surprise my family, not on the fourth Thursday in November, but just at some other moment to say, "Wow, look at God's great kindness to us! <laughs> yeah. Let's celebrate." And that's really what the pilgrims were doing, and we lose sight of that. So they lo- they lived lives of expectation then that God Absolutely. was active in in their Absolutely. lives. Absolutely. Yeah. And when you when you realize that of 102 passengers on the Mayflower, 52 had died when they had that celebration. Mm. That is just an amazing testimony to resilience and to uh, a hope yeah. that was not grounded in the immediacy of their trial. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's that's one very clear thing is to remember that the, the, the less rather than the ritualistic annual celebration of thanksgiving we should incorporate this expectation of god's intervention in our lives his providential his provision for us and declare mm-hmm. days of thanksgiving give me another one <laughs> oh let's see um hmm huh. well one of the things that i would just i would just encourage um you know your listeners to is just to uh, spend a little time uh, with uh, the pilgrims themselves, yeah. because um, we have remade the, the pilgrims every generation in our own image. So they have always sort of had the values that we thought were important at the time. <laughs> but you go back and, and, and read some of William Bradford's uh, History of Plymouth Plantation, for example. And I think it, it exposes the way in which even uh, devout uh, Christians today have in many ways been shaped by our culture. Uh, they, we're a culture that favors autonomy above everything else. Mm-hmm. They talked in terms of obedience. Yeah. Uh, we, we think in terms of individualism. They thought in terms of, of order. Um, th- their worldview is just so foreign to ours. Yeah. And when we take them seriously and accept them as our brothers and sisters in Christ, they have something to say to us yeah. that, that, that we should hear. Very good. Well, Dr. McKenzie, thanks so much for being with me today and for the first Thanksgiving, what the real story tells us about loving God and learning from history. Great talking with you. My my pleasure, Al. Thank you so much. Again, Dr. Robert Tracy McKenzie, the book is available in the online bookstore, The First Thanksgiving, What the Real Story Tells Us About Loving God and Learning from History.